Uh, we're going to continue the theme that we started in our devotional this evening, and that is uh, Jesus heading to Jerusalem for Passion Week. We picked it up in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. It's for the final week in his public ministry, and he is uh, traveling through Jericho. And, uh, all right. I'm going to try something here in this may. Okay. When you have weird stuff pop up and you don't know how to get rid of it, kind of punch it, make it go down. All right. So we're in Mark chapter 10. We, and this really is kind of interesting. Jesus comes across this blind man who's begging at the city gate in Jericho. His name is Bartimaeus. And, and Bartimaeus, Jesus' interaction with Bartimaeus, and even the people, with, including the disciples' interaction with Jesus, is really kind of a, a snapshot, if you will, of Jesus' entire ministry. I, I think what, what Mark has been inspired to do here is kind of give us one scenario that lets us see the, the core of Jesus' ministry and also the core of, of um, Jesus' success and the core of pe- those who are rebelling against Jesus. So it, it's, it's kind of an interesting snapshot all the way around. So... Uh, if you'll notice in, uh, let's just read it again, uh, then we'll, we'll have it as our background to, to run through. Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jerusalem as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. <clears throat> a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. <clears throat> so first of all, you notice he's accessible. It's kind of interesting because Jericho has been rebuilt uh, from the Jericho that we read about as the Israelites enter the promised land. That, that Jericho has fallen into disrepair. It's really kind of almost abandoned and certainly uh, in disrepair. And Herod has built a new Jericho nearby to support his winter uh, palace. So really it's it's kind of like a city that's there specifically to, be, to serve the, the palace. Well, Jesus is there, but he's not like Herod. He is out on the streets. He's in, in the midst of a large crowd. He's accessible. Uh, he's making himself available, even to a blind beggar. He's also approachable. Uh, so this man sitting by the roadside uh, is, is, comes to Jesus and, and approaches him. Now, and the disciples have a problem with that, right? They're, they're trying to, or the, the people try to stop him. They, we don't want him to bother this man, uh, but he would not be, he would not be pushed away. He would not be stopped. And so he comes to Jesus and, uh, what do you want me to do? I want my sight. He's approachable. He's also capable. Giving sight to the blind was one of the signs of the Messiah coming. That was one of the same things that Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied. When the Messiah comes, one of the things going to happen is the, the, the blind will be receive their sight. The eyes of the blind be opened, uh, Isaiah 35. And if you remember, John the baptizer was the same thing. When John the baptizer sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the, are you the one? He's in prison. He's not sure that's how his ministry was supposed to turn out. So he sends the, his disciples to Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus answers 
One, and part of the answer is the blind receive their sight. In other words, Jesus is fulfilling messianic prophecy. He is doing what he's called to do. So the call here is for you and me to appreciate the fact that we have a Messiah, a Savior, who is available and we need what he has to offer. So let me ask you this. What are some of the, uh, let me do it this way. If you're like me, it's easy for me to take some of the blessings I have in Christ for granted. I don't know if anybody else does that or not. But think back in the Bible for those who don't look to Christ, for those who followed Baal or followed Molech, or, or for those who had put their faith in someone or something other than God, what kind of length did they go to to get their God's attention? Can you think of any situation? Okay, so they've, they've tried and tried. I think of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. Is that where you're going with that? Yeah. yeah. Classic example, right? I mean, if you, if you want an example of what an idol is like and what people who worship idols go through, uh, Elijah and, and, and the, the, the 450 prophets of Baal. And it, it's, a, it's, it's one of those, uh, I want to call it a tragedy. Uh, it's 1 Kings 18. So every once in a while, Deanna will be looking, Deanna and I'll be looking through Netflix or something, trying to find something to watch. And it'll say, well, this is a comedy. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm in the mood for a lighthearted comedy. So I click on a comedy. And man, it's dark. It's just, it's dark. And I'm going, I don't know where the humor is in this thing, but, but it, it didn't tickle my funny bone at all. But that's kind of the way I am about this, this account of Elijah and the, and the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah feels like he's the only one. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the only one. They've killed all the other prophets and, and I'm the only one left. And and so he, he sets up this, this competition between him and the 450 prophets of Baal. Now, these are not 450 followers of Baal. These are 450 of Baal's top people. These, these are his connections, his, his prophets. And so they set up, and it's, let's just do a, let's just, let's just see whose God is available. And so they set up two altars. They put sacrifices on the altar, and then they wet the altar. Or they, they, then, then he asked the prophets of Baal, you know, call down your God and have them, whoever, have them you go first. If your God lights the, lights the sacrifice, then he's real. If our God lights the sacrifice, then our God's real. But, but you, you, your, your turn first. And Scripture says they tried until the sun started to set. They would dance. They would yell. And it says they would cut themselves as was their habit. Fascinating, as was their habit, trying to get. And then the, the sun is setting, and, and Elijah gets a little snarky, and, and he says, "Well, you know, why don't you try to yell a little louder? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's off off doing other things." So there's these enormous attempts that are made at trying to reach God. Uh, in, in Leviticus chapter eight, God tells His people, "Do not sacrifice your children." And yet you see that in, in Jeremiah chapter thirty-two, one of the complaints was that, that people were sacrificing their children to Molech. How desperate must you be to need to get your God's attention if you're willing to sacrifice one of your own children to do it? And so here, I, I, I remind me of that and bring you along on the journey. Maybe, maybe it's good for you too. To remind me of how unique and special it is to have a God who's among the people. Jesus is someone who was in, in heaven and, and he, if, 
The scripture says he didn't feel like the glory he had with the Father was something to hold on to. So he, he set the glory he had in heaven aside, came down to earth. And if you, if you think about what he left in heaven, what he gave up in heaven to come take on a physical body, he was slumming it. Now, we're made in the image of God. I don't want to take anything away from that. We're, we're, and, and we're made in the image of God. But if you can take an, an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent being and put him in a body that gets tired and gets hungry, that gets tempted, that's got to be a, a, a radical change from what he's accustomed to throughout eternity. So we, have, we, we don't have this God that we have to go to great lengths to get his attention. So there's, there's a wonderful blessing here that he is approachable. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Slumming is not an exaggeration. Made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Do you ever take for granted how accessible the Messiah is? The Savior? Do, do you ever, like me, fail to appreciate that, that? And Carl, thank you for the very gracious prayer, but, but Carl just walked up here and said, Pray with me. And, and I don't know about you, but all of us just took for granted that God would turn his face and he would hear and he would answer. He would always answer in what's best for us. Well, did, he, did anybody ever. When Carl led that prayer, or when Todd led the opening prayer, did anybody think to themselves, I wonder if God's going to hear this? We just have gotten so accustomed to having a God who's not in the winter palace in Jericho. He's out walking in the streets, walking past a blind beggar at the city gates. Uh, Sukhom, the guy who heads the ministry in Cambodia, Loves to say, I'm just, one, I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find some bread. You know, that's the idea of evangelism. Just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find some bread. So we may not be blind Bartimaeus, but in some ways we're just one beggar trying to get Jesus' attention as he walks by the city gate. And it's amazing to think that we have this Savior who is willing not only to come down and make this sacrifice for us, but is there at our beck and call. All right, so we have this Savior who's with us. He's approachable. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Matthew records Jesus' words where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So we need what the Savior has. We, and, and that's really kind of the summation of one, one side of this coin, relationship with God. Jesus is accessible. He's reachable. And he is capable. He, just as he restored the sight to Bartimaeus, he certainly restores what we need. He has the ability to restore what we need. By virtue of his sacrificial death on the cross, he can, he can deal with the sin problem that we can't. We, we, he's the perfect sacrifice that we are not. I was thinking about that when we were talking about this morning's lesson. The sacrifices that we're to offer as, as the royal priesthood, right? At, at, a, at a second First Peter chapter 2, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation offering sacrifices acceptable to God. In the Old Testament, what was the requirement for a sacrifice? Well, what was, what was the required quality of the sacrifice in order for it to be a, a, 
proper to give to God? What, what, what was the quality of the sacrifice that God was willing to accept? Jim? The best you had. The best you had. The, okay, the best you had. The, 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 an animal without fault or blemish. With, with no blemish. You, you, you can't, no broken bones. The Passover lamb can have no broken bones. And that's why Jesus, when he was on the cross, no broken bones, right? Uh, the, the, if, you're, if you're giving God a portion of your, your harvest from the field, what part does he get? The first part, the middle part, the last part, the gleams, what does he get? The, the first cut, right? He gets, the, he gets the, the, the best portion. And so if we're, if we're a royal priesthood and we're offering ourselves at sacrifice, as a sacrifice, how many, of us, how many of us can offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice without blemish? And yet Scripture says we're able to offer sacrifices acceptable to Him. And the way we can do that is because it's through Christ. When we come to Christ, the one who's capable, the one who's accessible, the one who's available and are washed clean in His blood, clothed with Christ, then we become that unblemished sacrifice that we can offer to God. Then we become acceptable. So isn't that interesting? God purifies us so that we can offer ourselves to him in an acceptable fashion. That's what's going on here with Bartimaeus. Okay? Uh, thoughts, comments, questions? All right, let's flip the coin. Let's look at the other side of this. We have Jesus who's capable, <clears throat> available, uh, accessible, but then we also have Bartimaeus in this as well. So let's look at Bartimaeus' role. It's important that humanity's job is asking for help, recognizing we have a need and asking for help. And the first thing we do when we ask for help is decide who can provide help. So look back at this passage here. <clears throat> Look at verse 46. They came to Jericho, Jesus and his disciples. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, son of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside begging. Pardon me. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, what was Bartimaeus doing before Jesus came by? begging, right? That he's, he's trying to make ends meet the best way he knew how. Why wasn't he knocking on Herod's summer palace door asking Herod to give him sight? <laughs> Two reasons. It wouldn't have worked and it wouldn't have gone over well. <laughs> Two very, very excellent reasons, Right? Was there anything that would give Bartimaeus any reason to think that, that Herod could restore his sight? Herod was unapproachable. He's unapproachable. And it wouldn't have worked out well. He, he might have lost his life instead of regained his sight, right? Is it, so there's no reason for him to go to, Bar, to, to, for Bartimaeus to go to Herod to ask for his sight. Why wasn't he asking the people instead of coins? Why was he asking the people as they passed by the city gates? By, I'll either take coins or if you can restore my sight. 
Why didn't he do that? They can't do it. They're incapable. So one of the things Bartimaeus has to do is recognize who can help. And so when he finds out it's Jesus of Nazareth, he won't be shut up. Why? He knew. He was convinced that that guy could help. He was convinced that that guy could fix it. I'd love to know what the story was behind all that. But he is not asking others. He recognizes who can provide him help. In fact, the only question Bartimaeus has for the crowd, it's in in, um, Luke chapter 18, verse 36, is what's happening? There's a a commotion as Jesus and the crowd comes by. Hey, what's going on? What's happening here? And he recognizes Jesus as the son of David. The one who can help him. He had to have heard about, yes, somebody was evangelizing, weren't they? Somebody was spreading the gospel. Somebody was talking about this Jesus of Nazareth fellow. And in fact, so much so, Larry, an excellent observation. Someone had to share with him that this Jesus of Nazareth was more than he appeared to be. He was more than just a carpenter's boy. Because if you notice, how does he refer to Jesus? Verse 48. Verse 47 and 48. Son of David. Son of David. That's, a, that's messianic language. Now, Jesus liked to refer to himself as the son of man. And I, I think what Jesus, when Jesus spoke of himself, quite often he would refer to himself as the son of man. And I think what he's saying there is he's... Humanity's representative. He's there to represent and to, to be the, the cure for humanity's sin, humanity's sin. So I think that's what he's doing there. But this idea of, of son of David, that's messianic language. You remember the promise that Jesus made to David? Or not Jesus, God the Father made to David? You'll never fail to have a descendant on the throne. And so here he is, someone who he's recognizing that this is a Messiah. He sees Jesus as the Messiah, his Savior. So, so the first thing Bartimaeus does, and which is exactly what we need to do, is he, he realizes who can help. Now, in our world today, 21st century America, for those that don't, haven't been informed like Bartimaeus has to look to God and Christ for help, who do the people who don't look to Christ for help, who do they look to or what do they look to for help? Yeah, they, they can look anywhere, right? You ever known anybody put their faith in science? You ever known anybody put their faith in, I'm sorry, government? Medicine? Money? Have enough money I can fix anything? Power? We live in a world where people are still looking in the wrong place for the cure. And so our job, as Larry points out, our job is to be the people who who share. You want to know how to get that problem dealt with? It's this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, the one who's accessible, the one who's available. 
And so the crowd, <laughs> what, what's the crowd's assessment of this guy? Verse 48. There's, there's some speculation here because it doesn't say what. Yeah, be quiet because he's not worthy. Why is he not worthy? What, does he have money? Does he have power? Does he have prestige? Does he have position? He's got nothing. He had the one thing he needed. But from a, from a human assessment, he was not someone worthy of this important person's time. Now, let's be fair. Uh, I, I have to be careful because I can get smug looking back at these guys, and I've got, I've got the advantage of the cheat sheets. I, I, know, I know what they should have done, and so I can take the high road like I would have been better at that, but I'm not sure I would have been. If, I was, if, if you and I were walking with Jesus and he was going to Jerusalem, if we had any inkling of what he was going to accomplish there, wouldn't we think that was an important mission that shouldn't be sidetracked? He's going to Jerusalem to pay the penalty for every sin that's ever going to be committed. And I would very much like for him to cover my sins before I have to face judgment. So, so this is not like he's going to miss a dinner date. It's not like he's got some minor appointment that's just going to be, if, if he's late for it, if he misses it, it's okay. I mean, this is the most pivotal moment in human history, the moment that God the Father prepared before the creation of the universe to deal with the universal problem of sin. He's on his way to do that, and some nobody wants to stop him. I'm not sure I wouldn't be like the crowd. There's something a lot bigger going on here. We'll deal with you later. And what's Jesus' attitude? He did something better than me. <laughs> hey, you call him. He's and now again, weird pictures in my head. The whole crowd's moving, right? And they're all following Jesus. They're all moving around the city gates. Next thing, Jesus just stops. I can just see everybody accordion right behind Jesus, right? What? What? You stopped. Yeah, there's this nobody over here that recognizes Messianic language, and he's calling to me. So bring him. So what kind of power... What right do you and I have to call on Jesus? What power, what prestige, what money, what influence, what right do we have to call on the name of Jesus? Okay, we've been baptized. Jim? Right. But I think Bartimaeus knew. I think he felt, I'd have to conclude that because Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Your faith is sozo. Yeah, your faith has healed you. So I, I'm, I contend that we have just to, no, let me say this. Let me see if I can say it better. The right we have to call on Jesus is simply because he's given us the right. 
by our own deeds, by our own power, by our own will, we don't have any more right than blind Bartimaeus does to call on the name of Jesus. But because he's given us the right to call on his name, we can call him and he'll stop. And our faith, by, by our faith in his grace, we're healed. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? So here he is, Bartimaeus called to Jesus, and when Jesus calls him in verse 50, he comes running. <laughs> um, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. I don't know if there was somebody holding his hand and running with him or if he was bouncing off people, but man, he was not going to give anybody safe between him and Jesus. He was, he was coming to him, and nobody's going to get in his way. Carl? Well, we yes. Yeah, the right we have to call on God is the right he gave us. Without him giving us permission, we have no right. Right? I mean, I have no merit of my own to call on Jesus. Why? Because I'm a sinner just like everybody else. All is sin and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me. Like Paul says, I'm chief of sinners. I'm chief among them. On my own, I have no more right than blind Bartimaeus to call on Jesus except that he invited that. And so the right I have to call on him was right that he gave me. It's not anything I've earned. It's, not, it's nothing about me being worthy. It's nothing about me deserving it. It's because of his grace and his mercy. Grace giving what I do not deserve, mercy not giving what I do deserve. That he's given me the right to call on him. So really in terms of in terms of personal merit I have none except that he said I could call on him is that because of baptism is that because that I can call him for because Jesus died for us and God gave us everything God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son yeah it's because he sent his son to die for the world. And so I can call on him as a sinner. I don't have to be a baptized believer to call on him, right? Isn't that, God's not willing to get any prepared, but everyone should come to repentance. Isn't that what we're talking about there? So it's, it's an open, John 3, 16, it's an open invitation to the entire world. And that passage, uh, was it first or second Peter, where he says he's not willing to get any prepared, but all should come to repentance. The, the invitation's open, and if God has his way, everybody accepts the invitation to call on his name. There's not a single soul that will call on his name in faith that he won't heal, restore, save. Right? But it's not because of any personal merit I have. It's because he gave me that status out of love. Which means I'm in the same boat as blind Bartimaeus. first year Jenny and I were in Cambodia <clears throat> we were teaching I think I was teaching one of the classes and one of the students 
we, we were talking about Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through him, Gospel of John. And he says, why haven't we heard this sooner? What do I say? Yeah. That, that's, what, that's what this morning was all about, right? <clears throat> that First Peter passage, the reason why we're supposed to be good examples is because we're supposed to be the kind of people that hold out the gospel in a way that makes people want to be a part of it. Okay. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, came to Jesus. And when he received that mercy that he so desperately desired, what does it say he did in verse 50? He followed him. He followed him. Identify the one that can help. Plead for mercy in following the Savior. That's the model for you and me, isn't it? Allah can't help. Buddha's not going to fix it. Scientology isn't going to solve it. Science may give me a, a temporary cure, but it sure can't give me a permanent cure, can it? And it sure can't give me a glorified body. So identify who can solve the problem, come to them, seek mercy. And when you receive mercy, follow. I, I think that's kind of cool. Jesus is on his way to become the perfect sacrifice. And on the way, he comes across this, this blind beggar and gives us a metaphor for his entire ministry. Find the one that can help. Come to him and seek mercy. And when you receive it, follow. Jesus is the only one that can help you and me with the sin problem. What, but what about, what about the most honest, the most ethical, the most upright, the most spiritual person? What, 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 if, we, what if we had some kind of way to identify who is that person in the whole, whole world, not just the U.S., but who's, a, who's the one person who's the most conscientious, caring, loving, gracious generous, kind, best person in the world. At least they don't need Jesus. <laughs> if they want to go to heaven, they do. We need Jesus. And we need to be humble enough to recognize we need Jesus and bold enough to call on him and not let anybody get between us and him. And then we need to be the people who, instead of being the, the wall that these people were between Bartimaeus and Jesus, we need to be the conduit that says, here, you need to come, come, come see the man who healed me. Like the, the what was it, the, the Samaritan woman at the well? Was it John 4? Come see the man that told me everything I've ever done. She goes into a village and evangelizes. You got to come meet this guy. He's told me everything I've ever done. And so the first converts in Samaria weren't because of the disciples. They, they were oblivious to the fact that these were lost souls that needed to hear the gospel. But the Samaritan woman, who was anything but the most perfect person on the planet, goes in and preaches. And the first converts in Samaria were because she came and spoke to her village about the guy that told her everything. Uh, Jimmy had a hand a second ago. Okay. Right. What Jesus was, what he meant to the cup, what he was to the person who 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to think that some more of Jesus would have rubbed off on them by now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and this is where I have to be real careful because I look at them and go, well, they're 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 kind of they're kind of thick headed, aren't they? I'm not sure I wouldn't be any less thick-headed if I was around it. But they do, they do consistently seem to fall back on human nature. Well, yes, human nature in terms of assessing value. They, they haven't quite grasped divine assessment yet. They, the, the, the children were unimportant. We don't need to bother with Jesus with that. The guy who was driving out demons and it wasn't, and, and it wasn't one of them. Uh, the, the two who wanted the best seats in the house, they, they have a very, a, a very secular, a, a very worldly view of prestige and power and importance. Still, even now, he, Jesus is on a mission. We didn't have time for a blind beggar. You'd like to think that they would have caught on by now. Now, let me ask you this. Do we have to own any of that? I mean, are, are we at all like the disciples, or are we just light years ahead of them in terms of catching on and, and growing in spiritual assessment and spiritual values? Or do we kind of struggle with that sometimes? Worldly values, worldly assessment? Yeah, I'm going I'm to start preaching if I'm not careful. <clears throat> You and I have to throw ourselves on the mercy of the Savior. The cross is the testament of God's love for the whole world, right? God's love of the world, that he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a testament to his love. Our calling is to follow Christ, the one who grants us mercy, and the one who calls us to be a light to the to the dark and dying world? Larry, I, I get to thinking about you know all the different things we do and how good that is. And then I was reading literature sent to me by the European Bible uh, group that's sending Bibles all over the world. Right. So European Bible groups sent out two million Bibles to to I guess Eastern European European yeah, countries that are thirty two different, different countries. Okay. And they said that's a good number. The only thing to remember is we need six billion Bibles. <laughs> thirty two million is a good number, but we need six billion so everybody can have a Bible. Yeah. Yeah. We ought not get too uh, caught up on how 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 good we are and how good we're doing. Yeah, thank you. Uh, any other comments? All right. Well, Jesus is heading on to Jerusalem, and what I love about this is he's he's headed to do. What do you what do you think is going through Jesus' mind as he's marching through Jerusalem, uh, Jericho, headed to Jerusalem? Uh, and, and as we we read in, in in the devotional before the the class started, as he looks over at Jerusalem, knowing what's coming. 
And this blind beggar calls out to him, and he has to correct the crowd and call him to him. What do you think is going through Jesus' mind? Somebody? If I can just keep laying that example out there, maybe somebody will catch on. Do you suppose knowing what's coming ahead of him weighs heavy on his mind? He wouldn't mind. I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I don't want to do that. He's going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to throw out the, throw out the red carpet for him or the, the palm branches. Welcome him as a hero. And just a few days later, they're going to crucify him as a blasphemer. And Scripture says the one who had no sin became sin. He, he became the picture of everything that he was against, sin. And he calls out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He, he's, <clears throat> he's agonizing over that decision. In, in the garden, he's going to pray, Father, if there's any way. I've never prayed that hard. I've been in some tough times, and I've prayed hard. I've never prayed so hard that I, I sweat blood. Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But your will be done, not mine. Do you suppose that was going through his mind when he's walking through Jericho? And yet he stops for this nobody and tries to teach the crowd something along the way. He tries to teach the disciples something along the way. There's, there's a big picture here. There's six billion people that need the Bible, but... We need to be one on, but we're going to convert them one on one at a time. I, I think there's an amazing story there. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and here's a quote from 1045, to give his life as a ransom for many. But on the way, he stops and heals a man that everybody else thought was not worth it. Wasn't worth his time, wasn't worth his energy. And in that act is an entire metaphor for his public ministry. Aren't we blessed to have a Savior who sees the value in us even when others may not? Let's pray. Father, this is a, a glorious day. The day of the week when Jesus rose from the tomb, the day of the week when your church began, the day of the week that we come together to celebrate the Lord's Day. It's also a beautiful day that you've given us here in Oklahoma. Beautiful sunshine, birds flying and chirping, the promise of spring right around the corner. And we come and read a story of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who stops in the midst of the most important mission that ever existed to heal someone who called to him in faith. Father, help us never take for granted your love for us expressed in giving us your Son. Father, let us never take for granted your Son's love for us to come and be that perfect sacrifice the Spirit's love for us, to be our counselor, another counselor. The love for us when you turn your face to us and hear us when we bow our heads in prayer. Father, let us always cherish these gifts. And we have a Savior who's accessible 
who's reachable, who's available, who's capable, and he loves us enough to restore us so that we can offer ourselves as unblemished sacrifices to you. Help us to be that offering. Help us to be that sacrifice. Help us to be that light to a world that needs it. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed, church. Thank you very much.